you know, in a functioning healthy church, you become part of that healthy community. You are grafted into this story. And, and I think that's something that why a healthy church is so vital in this incredibly fractious time where so many people's stories are, have gone wrong. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. David French is a political and cultural commentator and senior editor at The Dispatch. He's a contributing writer at The Atlantic Monthly and is the author of several books, including Divided We Fall, American Secession Threats, and How to Restore Our Nation. He's the co-host with Curtis Chang of the new podcast, Good Faith. David French is a former attorney and an Army veteran, having served as a squadron judge advocate in Iraq. I have found his weekly newsletter, The French Press, to be a reliable source of wisdom and insight in matters of law, politics, faith, and culture. David French, I'm so happy that you're on the uh, the Habit Podcast today. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, so, uh, I uh, we don't get a lot of political pundits around here. <laughs> That's not really that's good not, for you. Good for you. Yeah. And so, uh, you seem you like a happy were, person. Yeah. As you and I were discussing uh, earlier, um, you know, I'm, I didn't invite you onto the podcast to talk about politics, even though that's your area of specialty. One of your areas of specialty. Uh, what I'm interested in is is hearing you talk about how does one tell the truth hmm. in an environment in which truth is devalued, uh, in which, you know, uh, uh, ideology, uh, blinds us or makes us uninterested in reality. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I can ask you another question if that's helpful, or you can just start talking about what it's like <laughs> in, this, in this environment. Yeah. It's a really, it's a really good question. And, and I think it's a, it's a, a question with a, a very long answer. So I'll just start to answer it and, okay. and just jump in uh, right. <laughs> when, if I'm start to monologue too much. <laughs> but I think one of the first things that you have to do when you, when you are talking and you're, and you're thinking and when you're communicating in general, you have to think hard about who is your audience and, and are you, and to focus your energy around talking to people who are persuadable. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because not everybody's persuadable. I mean, there's no, as any, anybody who's a communicator in any area, whether you're a trial lawyer or a litigator, like I used to be, whether you're, um, gosh, whether you're making a movie or music, Mm -hmm. you know, you're not reaching out to a public whose minds are all completely open to you. (laughs) Yeah. You know, even the most popular entertainment in the world, think like, you know, uh, Avengers Endgame. There's yeah. a whole swath of people are never going to darken the doors of a movie theater to see a superhero movie. So, yeah. you know, so you're, you're always thinking about who, who is persuadable and on what basis are they persuadable? And that's when that's foremost in my mind when I am writing. Okay. I'm writing for an audience that I perceive to be persuadable. I'm typically not writing to change the minds of deep partisans. Okay. Mm-hmm. And there, there's a good reason for that. It's not that I don't think that um, we, should, we shouldn't dialogue with people who have a deep level of partisanship, that we shouldn't be in relationship with people. Of course. I mean, that's, you know, uh, fathers, 
mothers, uh, <laughs> brothers, sisters, friends. I mean, yeah. no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when I'm writing about culture or politics or law or religion. And I learned something very interesting um, when I was doing research for my book, which is which came out in September of 2020. Now, you know, coming up on 18 months ago. Wow. Um, when I was researching American partisan divisions, uh, I came across this really interesting um, bit of research. I was talking to folks who are specialized in understanding conflict and civil conflict. And they said, when somebody is a deeply committed partisan, they experience even an encounter with negative facts, not just argument, but mm -hmm. facts in the same way that you experience an attack. Mm -hmm. It triggers a fight or flight reaction. Uh -huh. It triggers a, a it triggers an almost an involuntary emotional reaction, and so that begins when you understand that. That begins to under, you begin to understand why, for example, um, you can't sort of fix a problem by like forwarding around fact checks, <laughs> yeah. or you can't send this article and say read this and change your mind. There's a lot mm -hmm. of spade work that has to be done before someone's mind is even open to an argument. Mm -hmm. And so my goal, my goal is to write to people who are open, to mm -hmm. write for people who are curious and, and then to try to understand um, what is it that makes them curious? What are they curious about? What are the things that are of most interest to them that would be most persuasive if I'm trying to persuade or most interesting to them if I'm just simply trying to inform or uh, do an analysis. So I'm really thinking along those lines, which sounds all very common sense mm -hmm. until you realize that a nor an enormous amount of conversation, cultural, political, religious conversation is not aimed in that direction at all. Right. It is, it is aimed in the direction of sort of reinforcing priors and mm -hmm. reinforcing pre-existing propositions. Yeah. And so, so it pays the bill. I mean, that's a lot easier exactly. to pay the bills, right? Exactly. I mean, at the dispatch, y'all decided to. I mean, you, you can correct me if I'm if I've got this wrong, but it's but from from my understanding, when y'all or when Steve and Jonah started the, mm -hmm. the dispatch and then hired you, um, the goal there was was not to uh, not to speak to deep partisans, but to to speak to people who were were hopefully persuadable. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah. You know, it was trying to reach a community of people and it's a, it's a large community of Americans mm -hmm. who fit within what you would call and what's a, a, a group that has been uh, labeled as the exhausted majority in America. Mm -hmm. okay. Now the exhausted majority is not the moderate middle. Okay. This is something that's a big misnomer. Okay. Okay. The, ex the exhausted majority are people on the left in the middle and on the right who are exhausted by our current toxic political environment. Mm -hmm. So they tend not to be ideologues. In other words, they are open to compromise and, and conversation, but they might be pretty firmly on the left or pretty mm, firmly okay. on the right, but they're open uh -huh. and they're tired. <laughs> and so, and who's speaking to them? And because, yeah. you know, the interesting thing is political, if you look at the numbers, so, you know, Fox News is the titan of, of political, uh, you know, of cable news. Um, but mm -hmm. in any given night, it's reaching between three and four million Americans. Okay. That's only about one out of every hundred or so Americans uh -huh. are watching Fox News. So there's this enormous number of people who are not really engaged in the partisanship of the press 
but who do want to know what's going on in this world and in our culture. And that's who we're aiming towards. And, you know, our readership reflects that. It's all over the map politically. <laughs> I would that, say it's so you, that's, you said it's all over the map. Is it evenly divided along? No, that? it's not yeah. evenly, as best as we can determine, because right. Steve Hayes and Jonah Goldberg and, and I, we, we came out of the conservative world and the conservative mm-hmm. movement. Mm-hmm. So the majority of our following is conservative. Mm-hmm. But I would say a majority of our following is, is disaffected conservative, yeah. Yeah. not yeah. partisan and uh, not deeply partisan committed. And so I would say our, our audience is more conserved, more on the right than the left, but we have a far more heterodox uh, following than a lot of other publications founded by mm-hmm. conservatives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, can I return to a phrase you used a few minutes ago? That is, you use the term negative facts. Yeah. Which, when you think about it, is, is an odd turn of phrase, right? Yeah. Facts are just facts. Facts, yeah. Or, I mean, that that's probably a naive way to put it. But there is such thing as reality that we didn't invent in our brains, right? There's reality right. That, that, that we didn't make up. Yeah. And one would hope that persuasion is a matter of, of helping people align with realities. Mm-hmm. Right. And yet... But but we have it in our head that there are such things as negative realities. Like there, there there are things that we wish weren't true, and therefore we are willing to lie about it, to yeah. fearmonger about it, um, or you can sincerely believe things that are just flat out wrong. Uh-huh. You know that sure. you know. So, for example, a negative fact would be if you are basing some of your political activism on an idea that, say, in a given jurisdiction more uh, people voted than were registered voters in the city. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you say, well, then therefore, a, you know, therefore I'm going to protest. Therefore I'm going to believe an election was stolen. Therefore, but your fundamental, the, the factual assertion that you're basing your activism upon is wrong. Mm-hmm. That's a negative fact. Uh-huh. And that requires a lot of, backtracking it might even require apology <laughs> it might <laughs> you know it re- to adopt that and to understand that as a fact has implications that can be very negative for you yeah. so you know let's let's just take for example let's just let, without diving too much into politics let's just say um you're a conspiracy theorist uh, about the moon landing. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And you belong to a community of conspiracy theorists around the moon landing. Those are your friends who mm-hmm. agree with you about the moon landing. Um, maybe that's where you make part of your living as you sort of right. do, you do YouTubes about the moon landing. And then, you know, one day you encounter somebody who is fairly easily debunked a lot of your, fundamental factual assertions, everything within you is going to want to reject that. And Mm -hmm. it's not just because, well, you've made your living, it's sort of this high level, well, I'm going to, it's going to cost me money. Okay. Hey, that's part of it, but there's so much more to it. It's your relationships, it's your friendships, it's your community, it's your identity. And this is what um, Jonathan Haidt talks about when he talks about uh, the difference between the rider and the elephant in persuasion. So mm-hmm. the rider is 
your rational mind. That's the part of you that says two plus two equals four. Got mm-hmm. it. <laughs> the elephant is everything else. It's your <laughs> geography. It's your ethnicity. It's your religion. It's your relationships, everything. And what Height says, if the elephant doesn't want to move, the elephant isn't moving. So the rider could say to the elephant, move. But if the elephant doesn't want to move, it's not going to move. But if the elephant wants to move, the rider is coming along. And so a trial lawyer, for example, kind of gets this instinctively. What a trial lawyer is trying to do and what I tried to do when I had trials, job one was to make the jury, not I couldn't make them, but try to get the jury to want to rule for my client. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of backfill all of that with the the reasons to rule. Yeah. So you, you you and so a lot of persuasion. I mean, again, this is something that's instinctive to a lot of people, and to a lot of people in the persuasion business. And it's also one reason why we are often moved towards falsehoods because the falsehood hits our elephant in the mm. right way. <laughs> the falsehood makes the elephant happy. Yeah. <laughs> and so when the elephant is happy, the rider is going along. And I mean, this is, of course, you know, a, a simplified way of looking at it. But once you understand that, you really begin to understand why people do what they do, why people stand where they stand. And it's, um, you know, it's a, a very illuminating way of understanding how people make decisions. You said earlier that you're trying to write to the people who are persuadable. How, how does that relate to the elephant and the writer? Does that mean you're talking to the elephant most of the time? Or are you? Uh... I'm often talking to people where the elephant is already moving them in some, like the elephant is indicating some willingness to move. <laughs> <laughs> and so the elephant is susceptible to the, the influence of the writer. That the elephant okay. has got some got some flexibility. The elephant doesn't know quite where to go. Okay. And then the, and so that's who I'm, that's who I'm trying to write for. Um, and, you know, and, and that's a, and, and, you know, what that means is that you're often um, trying to be very openly understanding of alternative points of view mm-hmm. You're trying to understand where people are coming from. But at the same time, that doesn't mean you're wishy-washy and equivocating. You're understanding and you're, then you're trying to um, illuminate or show a better path. Um, and now a lot of people get really upset at that. But the people who tend to really get upset at that are people where their elephant is in one particular <laughs> place and ain't budging. Yeah. The people who are more, un, you know, they may not be persuaded at the end of the day, but they appreciate the effort to engage. So you end up angering a lot of people with the things you write. Oh gosh. Yeah. Um, How did you reach? I mean, did you reach a point where you just said people are just going to be angry and that's, that's just what's going to happen. I mean, tell me, tell me how or if you came to terms with that truth. I'll tell you when I come to terms with it. Okay. Uh, (laughs) It's, You know, the honest reality is that I think if you have a hard heart, it it is a, I think it's actually a dangerous thing to get a hard heart towards hatred from other people Hmm. in this sense. I think you do have to develop somewhat of a thick skin or you're just paralyzed. You won't say Uh anything, right? 
Um, But at the same time, you have to understand, like I write about very complicated things. I write about, um, you know, the history and and philosophy of the American con- behind the American Constitution. I write about race in the United States. I write about religious liberty. I write about abortion. I write. I mean, yeah. almost every sort of third rail in American politics is and culture is like my beat. <laughs> I don't write about monetary policy, for example. I don't write about inflation. I don't write about. I say very little about tax rates or uh-huh. free trade or you know. My beat is kind of the the some of the cultural flashpoints in America, and all of these issues are hard and complicated. Mm-hmm. They're hard and complicated, and if you wall yourself off to critique, even angrily delivered critique, mm-hmm. um, you're in in many ways you become part of the problem um, because you become somebody who's set in your ways who displays an arrogance that's unbiblical. I mean, Micah 6.8 says we should act justly, do what we believe is right, but love kindness. And here's the critical last part of it, walk humbly before the Lord our God. The Bible Mm -hmm. says we know in part, we see through a glass darkly. And so you have to be open, but by being open, that does make you vulnerable. And uh, I have to say that I don't think I'll ever get used to hatred and maybe I shouldn't ever get used to hatred. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, my friend Helena Sorensen, uh, we've talked about this before on this podcast, you know, we, we writing teachers talk to writers about get, getting a thick skin. And, and she says, you know, it's the thin skin is what part of what qualifies me to do the work being yeah. and being open and being vulnerable. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and so it, I, you know, I, I've easy. told so many people they need to get a thick skin. And then after talking to Helena, I thought, huh, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe not. Well, you know, like you said, I, you got to have a thick skin in, in one sense and a, and a pretty thin skin in another. The way I've tried to put it, because it's sort of hard to formulate uh, a thick skin and a soft heart, mm-hmm. um, you know, an open heart, thick skin, but an open heart. In other words, you have to reach a certain point where people just hurling insults at you doesn't deter you because mm-hmm. that's one way that people try to shut down discourse in this country is just by inflicting enough pain that you don't say what you believe to be true kind of out of a stimulus and response kind of way right. that that's like, if I say what I believe to be true, I'm going to get shocked with this cattle prod mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I don't want to get shocked with the cattle prod. So I'm not going to say what I think is true. And, and this is not just a dynamic by the way, for public figures. I mean, Mm. We all know people who say, I would say X or Y or Z, but it's going to make so-and-so, Uncle Jim, Aunt Betty, my brother, my best friend, really mad. Mm-hmm. And so that's the cattle prod is that the person who sort of escalates and sort of imposes a cost on the conversation often ends up dictating the terms of the conversation just because you don't want to get shocked with that cattle prod. Yeah. Okay, so there are so many forces at work to oppose telling the truth. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, to tell you the truth, the, the, the thing that made me originally think, I've got to get David French on the Habit Podcast, was a, was a Sunday morning newsletter you sent out. Um, the, the French Press is the name of your Sunday morning newsletter? That's right. That's right. French Dispatch was taken. 
<laughs> well, that was a movie. So. <laughs> um, and and you 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 this was a oh gosh the name the name of the particular um, episode was mm-hmm. uh, a whiff of civil war in the air. Yeah, and and you talk about this idea that. Um, Maybe you can help me out here because now now I'm I'm not doing a great job of, of summarizing this, but in, in essence, um, we we believe we have this habit of believing you know we, we believe that anybody to the left of us is a communist, anybody to the right of us is a fascist. Yeah. It, it becomes this this outlandish, uh, exaggerated sense of um, just how bad you know that, that everybody thinks that 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 people who disagree with them are a threat to democracy. And that yeah. kind of escalation is a, um, well, is itself a threat to democracy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, then, and then you put it in terms of the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. Um, and, and you say, uh, one of the great tragedies of our time is that a nation oppressed by malice and misinformation should be ready to receive a Christian method message of love and truth. Mm-hmm. Um, that's exactly, it's exactly now that a healthy church could be a beacon in the darkness. And yet, uh, not all of us Christians are committed to telling the truth because lying works, man. You know, and (laughs) I mean, can you imagine the kid who, uh, I don't remember the first time I told a lie, but I can imagine, you know, somebody says, did you break this thing? And, And I said, no. And they said, oh, okay. And they go find somebody else to blame it on. That must have been a a thrill. Well, you know, the interesting thing is, and the reason I brought up the ninth commandment. So, yes, number one, lying works. It it, <laughs> uh, it over the short term, especially sure. lying yeah. works. Um, I mean, you know, we saw we've seen that. If, for example, in the election, the post election contest, there were just an avalanche of untruths that you hear them long enough from voices that you trust enough mm-hmm. and you're going to believe them. It just works. But the interesting thing about the ninth commandment, so I'm, I'm in the PCA. I'm and uh, you know, so Westminster, I'm all about the Westminster larger catechism. Mm-hmm. And I love the way the Westminster larger catechism sort of expands upon and articulates this ninth commandment. Mm-hmm. Now, now think of, listen to some of these words and think about them in the context of politics. Cause we have to remember that, Politics is not a Christianity-free zone, right? I mean, every yeah. single aspect of our lives should be transformed and renewed by the gospel. Every single aspect, including our political interactions, including our political engagement. You can't just say, well, politics ain't beanbag and, and write it off and say, well, these, this is where the rules don't apply. But I love this. The duties required, this is for the Westminster Larger Catechism, the duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own. Keeps going on and says, we need to, we need to speak the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice and all other things whatsoever. We have to have a charitable esteem of our neighbors, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities, freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces, defending their innocency, a ready receiving of a good report, and an unwillingness to admit of an evil report. Wow. That, that's convicting. Yeah. I mean, that's convicting. Yeah. It's and, fun to hear bad things about people who disagree with you. Oh, it's validating. Yeah. It's valid. It's deeply validating to get, 
if you are suspicious of somebody or you dislike <laughs> somebody and you receive, you see across your Twitter feed or your Facebook feed, some report about them and it can, you know, trigger that, those endorphins, I guess, yeah. you know, like that. <laughs> Aha! It's um, a lot easier than going for a run, you know? Yeah. But then, you know, we often don't even inquire as to whether or not it's actually true. And we just sort of hit the headline, get their affirmation and move on. And, and as we know, um, you know, the recent, our recent political history has been littered with allegations by left against the right and right against the left that have tr- proven to be either flat out untrue or completely unsupported by mm-hmm. the evidence. And, and uh, that's why we have to be careful. We have to be unwilling to admit of the evil report. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I loved that um, that passage uh, from the from the Westminster Catechism, which you had put in in your letter. And as I said, that that was uh, uh, when I really wanted to just sit down and have a conversation with you. Um, so, what's can, can we? I, I think this is a related issue. Can we talk about pluralism? First of all, can you yeah. tell me the difference between help me understand the difference between pluralism and just straight up sort of moral relativism or <laughs> or you know talk to me about that? Yeah, that's a great question because a lot of people think that if you embrace pluralism that you're embracing relativism. Mm-hmm. That in essence so pluralism is essentially um I think one of the most important documents in American history is to read is James Madison and Federalist number 10. Uh, because what you have to understand about early America is we look back on it now and we say, oh, that wasn't a very diverse country. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was all just various different strands of like white Protestants with a smattering of Catholics, you know, mm-hmm. and then who obviously oppressed and enslaved, um, you know, black Americans at the time. And and you go, well, that wasn't that diverse. But the reality is, if you look at the eastern seaboard of the U.S. in colonial era, you're going and you're looking at you know, Puritans in Massachusetts, you're looking at Rhode Island, which included a lot of people who are refugees from the Puritans in Massachusetts, you had Quakers <laughs> in Pennsylvania, you had Catholics in Maryland, you had Anglicans in Virginia, you had criminals in Georgia, where they're still there. And you had <laughs> all of all of these different factions, which had proven in Europe to just be perfectly capable of going to war with each other mm-hmm. in, in vicious, mm-hmm. deadly genocidal warfare, the wars of religion were not, we were not that far removed from the wars of religion. And what Madison said was not that, oh, all these viewpoints are equally valid. Mm-hmm. That's, that's relativism. That's saying, mm-hmm. well, you know, it doesn't matter if you're Puritan or Catholic or any other faith, they're all equally valid. It's no, we need to give people who have competing truth claims, equal access to the public square. People who have competing truth claims should be able to live in harmony with one another. And so how do you do that? You don't do that by saying, well, everyone's truth claims are equally valid. You do that by saying each one of you has a space, a place in this country to advocate for what you believe to be true and to live out what you believe to be true. So for example, if you you know, uh, right now in this country, we do not think it is remarkable at all to drive down a street and to have a mosque in one place, a synagogue in another place, and a church in another place. Mm-hmm. But that's a 
a miracle of American pluralism. That is not the historical norm to have that degree. And yet in that church, the people who are in the church are not saying Judaism or, or, or Islam are equally valid. They're saying, no, we want people to be Christians. And, you know, in a synagogue, they're not saying Christianity is equally valid. So that's not relativism. It's pluralism. What pluralism does is it gives you, if you have deep, um, if you have deep beliefs that conflict with the deep beliefs of your neighbor, you both have a space and you both have a place. And who knows, one might convince the other one, but the other one can't coerce the other. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you say in, in the same letter I was talking about a minute ago, we're not going to make our way through the wilderness by exaggerating disagreement. Yeah. But we're also not going to do it by minimizing our differences either. And that seems relevant to what you're, you're talking about here, right? right? In, in, right. in a, you know, uh, in a community, we can, um, as you said, have a mosque and a, and a synagogue and a, and a church. And, um, and one way to live in, in peace is to not exaggerate our differences, but, but we don't, as you said, we, we have a forum yeah. really, where, where we can uh, discuss our differences. Um, and you said, this isn't a squashy, a squishy moderation that asks of members, asks members of our political and religious communities to abandon or alter their fundamental beliefs as a condition of full participation in American society. Yeah. You know, one of the ways that I put it is fight for the rights of others that you would like to exercise yourself. Mm-hmm. So, I can defend the religious liberty of a mosque without believing the truth claims that Muhammad makes. <laughs> yeah. um, I can, I'm fully capable of doing that because one of the things is I, the liberty that they exercise, one of the things about liberty and in, in understanding the rule of law surrounding liberty is that when another person's liberty grows, so does mine. Mm-hmm. So does mine. And, and so, you know, I can on one day, I could in one day file an amicus brief in court saying, um, you know, first mosque of Franklin or whatever (laughs) is fully entitled to constitutional rights. And then the very next day I could go debate the imam Mm -hmm. about a, you know, a point of uh, faith or a point of a theology. Um, And those two things are perfectly consistent with each other in a pluralistic society. And where we begin to break down is where we say that my truth claims are so self-evident mm-hmm. and, and my, my um, virtue is so self-evident that I should be privileged in the assertion of my point of view over and above, say, the mosque. Mm-hmm. Or when somebody says, you know, the very idea that you have a better idea than the imam is problematic. Uh-huh. And should be suppressed. That 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 your uh, your moral assertions by themselves are problematic. That's the relativism. Mm-hmm. But you know the interesting thing about relativism is it's never really truly consistent. <laughs> because, yeah. I mean, I, I, the idea that all truth claims are equally valid is itself a truth claim. Um, right. Which I mean, but anyway, we don't need to go down that <laughs> rabbit hole. Um, yeah. But it's. But there, the, the point stands that there's a fundamentally different relativism and pluralism are just fundamentally different concepts. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I um, appreciate the idea you know, that you mentioned a minute ago that, that as, 
as everybody's freedom grows, my freedom grows. And I think it's easy in in areas of cultural conflict to start thinking in terms of, of a zero sum game and losers yeah. and winners. And, you know, I my prosperity depends on you having less prosperity or my uh, it's going to be hard for me to flourish if 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 you my, my definition <laughs> of flourishing is is comparative in such a way that you're, you know, if you flourish less then by comparison, I must be flourishing more. And these, these kinds of things that, that are, are pretty uh, detrimental mm-hmm. to our culture. Um, okay. Can I give you a super concrete example of how, Please do. so I'll give you a great example. Let's go to one of the most divisive Supreme court cases of the Obama era, the Hobby Lobby case. You remember this, this is where the Hobby Lobby wanted a partial exemption from the Obamacare contraception mandate. Went to the Supreme Court and it really broke down on right left lines. I mean, most people on the right were like, yay, Hobby Lobby, this is religious freedom. And most, and a lot of people, you know, most people on the left were, no, 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 this is an uh, infringement on women's rights. Uh, This is, you know, uh, a coercive religion. Mm -hmm. And the Supreme Court very narrowly, 5 4, said Hobby Lobby had a religious liberty right under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act to um, exempt, to be exempt from portions of the Obamacare contraception mandate. Fast forward several years in a group of um, left-wing religious individuals were leaving food and drink for immigrants, for people who are illegal immigrants who are crossing illegally into this country so that they wouldn't starve or die of exposure in a harsh Mm -hmm. wilderness. But they were trespassing on federal land and they were prosecuted criminally. Mm -hmm. And they said, no, 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 we have a religious liberty right to our our religion compels us to care for the stranger, to compel for the refugee. And so this is what we're doing. And the court ruled for them in what was one of the cases that they court used to rule for these left-wing religious immigration activists, Hobby Lobby. <laughs> and so it wasn't just the case that when Hobby Lobby won, that only conservative Christians won. When right. Hobby Lobby won, people of faith won. And so that's what I mean when I say that when a, a liberty, a religious liberty claim is vindicated in court, it expands all of our freedom. It expands, it, it, build, it makes the pie bigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. One of your recurring themes in your, in your Sunday letters is, you know, essentially, yes, I'm a political commentator, but politics aren't the the be all end all of yeah. our, how we're going to solve our cultural yeah. problems or our personal problems or, or, yeah. or whatever. And, and, and uh, more than that, you, you, you say with many other uh, people that as our um, religious and community commitments decline, those get replaced by uh, a, a religious fervor that gets redirected to politics. Yeah. Uh, sometimes. Yeah. Um, and in a, in a recent, uh, another one of your Sunday letters, you said, um, uh, you know, we have a small, we, we can either have a large influence on a, on a small number of people yeah, or a small influence on a large yeah. number of people. Right. And, yeah. and the, the way we treat our family and our neighbors ultimately is more important than our, than our political obsessions. By far. <laughs> By far. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And I think if I'd said ultimately, I should have even said ultimately, like not just ultimately, but right this minute is more, yeah. is more important. Um, 
And, and yet you spend your work days mm-hmm. trying to have an impact on a large number of people. Yeah. That's what, <laughs> I know. That's what writers <laughs> do, right? cognizant. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I, I would also, I would say for me, you know, one of the things, and, and we, we have different roles and we have, mm-hmm. so for example, a pastor has more of an ability to impact a large number of people than um, almost anyone else in his church. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he has a platform where he's speaking to a large number of people. Yeah. <laughs> he's right. a lot of people look to that pastor. So there are individuals in America who do have, and is part of the function of what they do and the platform that they have, that they have more influence on a larger number of people than, than the average person does. You know, a president has a lot of cultural influence, mm-hmm. more cultural influence maybe than any other single person in the U.S., but the president doesn't have as much cultural influence uh, maybe uh, on a person is, or or personal influence on a person than, say, like your father or your mother. Yeah. Um, they, <laughs> they certainly have more. And so, you know, uh, God has blessed me with a platform so that there are more people that read what I write than, you know, say the average person or more people who might look to me for understanding about the Supreme Court and the Constitution than the average person. Mm-hmm. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to put that in perspective, not just for everyone else, but for me as well. Yeah. For me as well, that the reality is what is far more important is the way people are loving their families, building their families, loving their churches, building their churches, then the most viral tweet or article that I've ever written. Yeah. And if that tweet or article or podcast or speech or whatever can play sort of any kind of constructive role, mm-hmm. um, then I'm thankful. Yeah. I'm thankful. But I know where, truthfully, I, you know, these words sit in the hierarchy. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. so, yeah. you know, that's, that's one of the things that I think that we're losing in, this, in the, our country is this idea that we're often putting a lot more of our energy and efforts into the things where we have the least impact, truthfully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and energy and efforts aren't just phys- like time, uh, you know, uh, pretty much everyone actually spends more time with their family than they do watching cable news, for example. Uh-huh. But I'm also talking about mental energy. And yeah. mental, where, where's your mind? Where's your heart? And so an awful lot of us are moving that mind and that heart away from the six inches in front of your face, the person across the table, yeah. the friend at the other end of the phone call, into what's happening in the San Francisco Unified School District <laughs> and their intolerable policies regarding school opening, which those are important. You know, they're especially important to parents in San Francisco, but we spend a lot of our time really torn up about what's out here and often miss what's up in our face or it influences the way we interact with people who are right here, right in our face. And that's what I'm trying to use, sort of use what little influence I have to the extent (laughs) that I have influence Is to maybe say, maybe this is self-defeating. Maybe to say, spend less time thinking about like the stuff I write about (laughs) and more time thinking about, you know, how, how can I repair this fractured relationship with uncle Jim? 
And, you know, one of the things I tried to do, because I began to see, because I'm in, in, you know, I've experienced just people, even up close and personal in my life, just being horrible um, to me and to my family. I mean, I remember there was a moment when we, you know, I, I publicly opposed Roy Moore for mm-hmm. Senate. And I will never forget walking into my kids, basketball, my son's basketball game at a Christian school in Tennessee. And I saw two families literally turn their backs to me. Mm. They literally, and these are people I'd known for a long time. They turned their backs because I didn't support Roy Moore. And, and so one of the things that I've tried to do is I, I can't control if somebody is going to stay in relationship with me. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you what, I don't want to fracture a relationship with, a. I don't want to be the person who fractures a relationship over a political disagreement. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that politics doesn't matter. It does matter. It's my career to think about it. But I'm trying to put into place a hierarchy yeah. of relationships and a hierarchy of priorities. Yeah. Yeah. There are a few people you determine their bedtime, for instance. <laughs> that, yeah. That you've got a big impact mm-hmm. on. Lord yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that I try to point out is, and I also am fully aware that I'm speaking often to um, an audience that is among the more politically interested and politically focused mm-hmm. in the U.S. And so in some ways, I'm speaking to an audience that along with me, I, you know, some of us are part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, I do think that there's a, and, and part of it is to try to help people understand why are things the way they are. That's a big part of I view that as a big part of my job Mm -hmm. is to help people understand why are things the way they are. And one of the things I write about a lot is why are people so intense about politics? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And part of the answer is because of the the degrading of these other first order relationships, the loss Mm -hmm. of these first order relationships, collapsing families, less engagement in civic associations and churches, sort of a less of a sense of a meaning and purpose in the world that's up close to you. But we still have a desperate desire for meaning and purpose, right? It's just, it's built within us. And so then you latch on to something that's maybe further from you or latch on to politics when other things crumble. And, and, you know, one of the points I made, and I I titled a piece this, there are wounds that politics can't heal, Mm -hmm. that there's a sense of emptiness or a sense of longing or a sense of meaning, a, a lost sense of meaning that politics can be sort of like the shiny new thing for a while, but it's ultimately deeply unfulfilling. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's one of the, uh, that particular newsletter is one of the ones I was reading from just a minute ago. And in, in that, in the, we need to wrap up here, but, but I think something that's especially relevant for, for writers that you say in that letter, you're, you're quoting uh, your uh, podcast co-host Tr- Curtis Chang from your, yeah. your new podcast, Good Faith. Um, and he, he said, Curtis Chang talks about hope as locating oneself within a larger story, specifically a story that has a past that fills us with longing, a future that pays off on that longing, and a present that engages our energies. Yeah. And I, I spent a lot of time talking to, to writers about the importance of telling a truer story than the one the world mm. is telling. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in politics is a matter of storytelling. And a lot, yeah. sometimes the stories are true and a lot of times they're not. Well, you know, and, and that's the beauty of a functioning, of a healthy functioning church is you can take a person who can, can walk in that door, whose their story is 
gone wrong. Mm-hmm. They're, they don't have a past yeah. that they can look back with, at with any kind of uh, hope or, or any, any, they don't have a past that has any warmth. They, yeah. the, their present is fractured. Their future is uncertain. And the beauty of the gospel story is that you become part of the go- that gospel story. Yeah. You know, in a functioning, healthy church, you become part of that healthy community. You are grafted into this story. And, and I think that's something that why a healthy church is so vital in this incredibly fractious time where so many people's stories are, have gone wrong. Mm-hmm. So many people's stories have gone awry and they don't see a happy ending. They definitely don't see any kind of past worth longing for. And then because of no hope in the future, no real past to connect with, their present is empty. And that's where so many people are right now. And that's one of the reasons why I've, I've often urged that we, the church itself has got to get out of the partisan political business. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that you don't vote. And that doesn't mean that maybe you don't even run for office, but we can't have that as part of our definition of who we are. Yeah. Because we want as many people to connect with the gospel story without feeling like they also have to connect with the Republican story yeah. <laughs> or the Democratic yeah. story. Yeah. That's a distraction from the gospel story. And, and again, it doesn't mean that once you understand and engage in that gospel story, that it doesn't have implications with how we interact in the body politic. But that partisan identity is, is, is not just secondary or tertiary, it's irrelevant compared to that gospel identity. Yeah. Well, David French, I'm really grateful for the way that you tell the truer story. I uh, usually agree with you. Sometimes I don't. But what I'm really (laughs) grateful for is the way your way of telling the story is true, too. Uh, Well, thank you. (laughs) So thank Thank you. you. Thank you for your work. And thanks for being on the Habit Podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a, real, a real privilege. The Habit Podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To check out more of our podcasts, visit rabbitroom.com slash podcast. Our work at The Rabbit Room would be impossible without the generous support of our membership. If you'd like to learn more about membership at The Rabbit Room, visit rabbitroom.com slash member. And thanks for listening. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.